On August 24, 2006, Jerry Rice, the legendary wide receiver, signed a one-day contract with the San Francisco 49ers to officially retire with a team that he played for the majority of his NFL career. Rice is often referred to as the GOAT because most believe that he's the greatest wide receiver of all time. Now, even though this GOAT's career was ending on that day, another GOAT's career began about a month earlier. This week's guest ventured on a podcasting journey July 27th in 2006 and is considered by many now to be the GOAT in his field. And it all revolves around a little history that is considered hardcore. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time as we step off the DeLorean, the date is July 7th, 2006, and we're just chilling. We're at our favorite location to listen to podcasts. I mean, that is for the people that actually know what a podcast is back in 2006. Because there were too many out there. We're searching wherever we can find podcasts and we come across a brand new one. There's something called Hardcore History. Huh. This seems kind of interesting. There's an episode. It's titled Alexander vs. Hitler. (laughs) I'm like, wait a second. What is this? Because congratulations, sir. You have just caught my attention. The description on this Hardcore History website goes like this. It says that Dan compares the way the modern world sees Adolf Hitler with the way history views Alexander the Great and wonders if the two men weren't more alike than different. (laughs) I mean, we know we're in for something that is not going to be what we're used to. But it's not in a bad way. It's maybe in a good way. But why talk about Hardcore History on the Football History Do podcast? Simple. That's because Dan Carlin, the host of Hardcore History, the GOAT of history and storytelling, was a major inspiration for me starting the show. And that's why I thought, what better way to bring him on the 100th episode of the Football History Do podcast than to have one of my inspirations, my podcasting heroes. And it goes beyond that, though, because Dan is just like what I'll call a storytelling juggernaut. I mean, he sucks you in with his intriguing contact. He entrances you with the way that he explains events, and then he leaves you wanting more. Just like when you go to those little restaurants, and they give you that tiny dish, and it's so good. But then it ends. And you're like, man, I'm not even full yet. I want more. Give me more. But you got to wait till the next time you go to the restaurant. But it's so expensive, you don't go there for a long time. It's the same way with hardcore history. There's not... An episode each week, you gotta wait a long time to the next one, but it's worth it. It's so good. And speaking of more, he just came out with a book about three months ago. And I'm gonna go ahead and leave links to this book and his podcast and everything else in the show notes for you. Which, by the way, you can get to the show notes to your podcast player or by heading to the dedicated Dan Carlin page on the site, which is thefootballhistorydude.com slash Dan Carlin. That's Dan C-A-R-L-I-N. Again, that's the footballhistorydude.com slash Dan Carlin. Also, while you're at it, I ask that you please subscribe for free to this show. 
by mashing that little subscribe button in your podcast player choice. That way you get the hottest, freshest off the press episodes we'll each and every week. Uh, but getting back to Dan, he's also very knowledgeable and passionate about football. Even more so than I could have even imagined when I reached out to him to ask him to be on the show. So sit back, relax, and join me in talking a little bit of hardcore football with Mr. Dan Carlin. Hey Dan, welcome to the Football History Dude. Thank you for having me. I went through a lot of different options on how I wanted to start this show off. Obviously that uh, you have a show that I've talked about here in the introduction that people can't get enough of. And every time that little dinger comes off, the new episode got released. It makes us tickle in our hearts because I can remember exactly where I was the last time that the Supernova in the East episode released. I was sitting in my favorite restaurant. I was eating and I go, holy crap, it's Christmas in October kind of thing. So yours was the first time I ever had a driveway moment. Do you know what a driveway moment is? I think people have told me what a driveway moment is, but why don't you explain it? Okay. So the driveway moment from my perspective, the first time I ever listened to your show would have been uh, King of Kings, episode number 56. I heard you on Tim Ferriss's podcast, as many other people have, and I'm like, I got to go check this thing out. So I'm on my way home from work. I'm listening to King of Kings. I enjoy it, of course, just because of the, you know, the Persian Empire and all these other things. But I got so entranced into a story to the point where I know I used to live in Texas at this time. Now, mind you, July, 100 degree weather. So this is pretty warm out. I literally stopped the car, parked in my apartment complex. And I listened to 30 more minutes sweating my buns off. And that's a driveway moment where it's like, I just couldn't put it down. I had to get interrupted to the point where, oh, crap, I didn't realize it was 30 more minutes down the road. And that's the type of thing that you, Dan Carlin, do for many people as far as telling stories. I believe the NFL is the same way, and maybe I'm a little bit biased. What do you think from a storyteller's perspective? Why do you think the NFL captivates an audience so much? Oh my God. Well, go look at how, I mean, to me, the, the, the best example to look at of the NFL distilled down to storytelling elements is NFL films. I mean, these, these are storytellers who are working with the footage, the raw footage from games uh, to assemble a narrative, right? What, what was that game like? What was the feel of that game? What, were, what, were the, what was the context that that game was played in, right? Did it mean anything? Did it get somebody to the playoffs? Uh, was it this player's last game or or was it a memorable or infamous moment in the sport? So, so I mean, in the sense of you start off with storytelling, and this is kind of how we always do it, is, is you find a great story and then you're halfway there to entertaining the audience, right? Same thing with, with a football story. If you, if you have a great, um, a great piece of, let's just call it a great piece of clay to work with, uh, you're halfway there to sculpting a great sculpture. So you look at NFL films and how they turn the narrative surrounding what's essentially just a sporting event into something that by the time they've got the the rousing music going, the heavy duty announcer and the whole thing, um, this this is something that is turned into the raw elements of a story, whether it's a, the old violent ballet sort of idea or the, the uh, introduction of stock characters that you know, you know, the steel curtain or these, or, you know, every, it, the whole thing is almost set up for that kind of thing. So I can see how you could have certainly an NFL moment where you're stuck in the car listening to a game and you don't want to turn the channel because uh, this running back is about to break the all-time record or something like that. It's a narrative. It's creating a story so that there's value and meaning to the person listening. Yeah. And for me personally, 
you bring up a good point. When I'm watching a game, now mind you, my team's the Detroit Lions and my fans know this, but uh, I haven't had many happy moments, but I won't miss a play. Even though I don't have one of those little record things, you know, like we can press pause and skip through commercials. I have to actually watch it live. I won't go to the restroom until the play's over and that kind of thing. So it's the same concept. And you mentioned, uh, you know, the whole games of going back and remembering them about that. So what is your, I guess, moment in football history? The NFL is in the 100th year right now. This is 100th season of the entire NFL. So there's a lot to pick from. But you personally, Dan Carlin, what game do you remember the most? And can you explain it? Describe that five-minute moment? Uh, I remember Jim Brown, the great running back, talking about uh, sort of the larger implication of the game. He was talking about how people would come up to him years later and say, I watched that game with my dad, and it's one of those bonding moments where it became a moment in time to me that I think back on fondly. And great football games, uh, big boxing matches, there's a bunch of those kinds of sporting events where you remember more than just the game itself. You remember who you were with, the context of the times. And so, I mean, I remember watching a game, and this is the direct answer to your question, with my dad. And it was one of those games, it was my stepdad, actually, we were watching, uh, it was the 1985 season when the Chicago Bears were having their real dominant year, and they were going to go to the Super Bowl under Mike Ditka, and I'd never seen a team like that. It was, and, and as the year went on, more of us, I mean, you watched with more and more intensity because the games were crazy. Watching their defense do what they did, I mean, you just sat there slack-jawed a lot of the time, and there had been great defenses and really high-pressure defenses before, but I'd never seen one that flew around like that that wiped out quarterbacks like they did, that, that had the quarterback's eyes as large as they were when they faced the Bears. And then I remember one night, um, and I watched it with my stepdad. I, I don't remember if it was a Monday night football game or not, but there's a part of me that thinks it remembers that it was. And it was that game where the, that Chicago Bears team that should have gone undefeated that year, they only lost one game, and that was the game. And it was to the Miami Dolphins. And I remember watching it unfold in real time because none of us had things that paused television or anything back then either. This is going to be 1985. Um, and watching Dan Marino carve up that amazing Bears team and be as surprised at what he was doing to them as I had been surprised all year at what they were doing to every other opponent. Uh, watched it with my stepdad. And sometimes I think back fondly on that. They'll show replays of it from time to time. And I instantly flash back to where I saw it with my stepdad. He's been gone for years now. But it brings back so much more than just the emotion of that game. It brings back the emotion of the people you were with at the time. That's the most memorable game that comes to mind right away. Yeah, I mean, just it's just like any other kind of events, and especially like you said with the NFL and how it can captivate an audience. I remember exactly where I was for a lot of different games or plays or things like that as well, and going to the games. Have you attended live games that much in your past? Well, I've been living in Eugene, Oregon for about 25 years, and we don't have a pro team here. <laughs> right, yeah. uh, back in Los Angeles, where I'm from, though, we had the Rams when I was growing up, and then for a while we had the Raiders, and for a while we had both. Uh, so I, I've gone to Rams games, I've gone to Ra LA Rams games, LA Raider games uh, back in the day. I, I don't think I've seen a pro game that didn't involve one of those two teams, though. So I, I never saw any of these teams on the road. Um, but yeah, I've, sure. I've seen, pro, I've seen a lot of college games too. So if that's the case, then what would you say is your experience and why would you tell somebody that going to a live game is better or maybe not better than watching on TV? What's your take on that? I don't think it's better than watching on TV. I think some sports are TV sports and some sports are live sports. Uh, basketball to me is a live sport. Baseball is a live sport. 
Uh, football and boxing to me are TV sports. You you, you miss – I find – there's certain things that I miss when I'm not at a football game. I mean I like being able to see the whole field, seeing what the defensive backs are doing. And those are things that are usually outside the shot when you get that tight pre-snap shot uh, in, in both college and pro. So I miss that. But otherwise, the ability to see the replay, the ability to see the multi-angles, the ability to see the little things going on that just – you know, when you're – even with good seats in most stadiums, you miss that kind of stuff. And so for me, I mean, listen, I like a good football game as much as the next person. But to me, that's a sport where I actually enjoy that on TV more. Yeah, my uh, my grandpa's only been to one NFL, maybe even college too, but one game in his entire life. I was lucky enough to be at the game with him. It was against the Jacksonville Jaguars. Their first year, The you know they were, uh, I want to say it was 96. And the Lions beat them 44 to nothing. But I can remember the very last series of the game where the Lions had, I think it was like their third stringers in, maybe the four stringers. I don't even know how far deep they went. They had a third and goal stand, and then they went for it on fourth and goal because they just wanted to get points. And our third or four stringers stopped them, and it was just the stadium was crazy. This is back in the Silver Dome, a little bit different kind of situation than Ford's Field now. But yeah, the, so that's what I like about it is the energy, the raw energy. And I can remember this play where David Sloan coming through the middle where I could see it before, like you said, the camera wouldn't have picked it up. But then, boom, it's like, I know this is going to go to that guy. And there it goes. And he, he runs off to the end zone. Unfortunately, there was a Packers game. So there were more green and yellow jerseys in the uh, stands and there were Lions. But I, I see your point. Watching the game in. TV is just this game is made for television. And that was a big reason why I believe the game moved from second, third, fourth place in America's hearts to number one, really with that 1958 championship. Do you know much about that game, the the overtime one? Sure. Colts, uh, New York Giants. Absolutely. Uh, as a matter of fact, because the Colts were one of my teams. I wasn't around in 1958. <laughs> but, but those things, you know, how football's done also a wonderful job, I think, at uh, at telling their history and bringing every subsequent football fan generation sort of up to speed. It's actually one of the examples I use when I try to explain to, to young students that they're into history, they just don't know they're into history. It just depends on what history we're talking about, right? The history includes everything and the, the past of everything. So you're into something. It has a history. If the NFL is what you're interested in, look at what a great job. I would suggest that the NFL probably does the best job of any sport out there in teaching its history and making it interesting and turning it into a sort of lore, if you will. Um, and I think that is is as much of, as anything a, a, an example of why they're successful. They bring you up to speed in the storyline and they get you invested, even if you weren't there in 1958 to see it early on. Yeah, that was going to be one of the questions I was going to bring up, considering you have seen how generations have changed the tune of you know the culture and things like that throughout time maybe just answer this question why do you think that nfl fans are so rabid for the sport their team and so on and so forth their players i think that that taps into a human nature thing i mean look how rabid the soccer fans are in europe uh, uh the crazy head banging uh go i mean i mean i i think i think sport well, I was going to say it substitutes for something, but at the same time, it's always been unique. I mean, you can go back to ancient Rome, and they were this freak out about the chariot races and the various contests that they had then. It taps into something in the human psyche, and I think the more, um, I, I don't know if action-packed is the adjective I want. There's a different feel in sports like boxing, uh, football, 
uh, chariot racing than there is in something like uh, uh, baseball, where your moments of passion and excitement are are it's there's a different pace, if you will, right? You get a big home run, and oh my god, the, there's a giant spike in the energy level. Whereas I think I'm talking sort of without really thinking about this, but in my head, it just seems like the rhythms are different in terms of of, of the growing amount of passion that you get in the course of a game as things go on. I just feel like football to me is a bunch of quick hits where something, I mean, football is a bunch of like growing big waves, whereas baseball, uh, for example, is a bunch of quick hits, right? Home run here, strike out there. Football sometimes, I mean, you look at some of those 13 play drives or uh, with a couple of fourth downs mixed in and all that kind of stuff, and you can just feel it building. And it's a different kind of growth in energy. It's hard to describe, but I think for people like yours truly, I appreciate and enjoy that more. Listen, I think that that sort of pacing uh, is something that helps make it America's game when we go from a more um, uh, slow era, like the era where baseball was king, to an era where we're used to more fast-paced action uh, and the sort of stuff that football more brings to the table. Baseball is a 19th century game and has that sort of feel. Football feels thoroughly modern. To kind of go along with a lot of your your history that I've listened to with the hardcore history, and I've thought about this question, and I don't know if I'm just totally aloof to the situation, but I always wondered if America's drive for offense and attacking and things like that somehow have to do with their culture. And we've always... I shouldn't say always, but generally we're on the offensive. We're not defending. We're always going towards something. And I guess, is that something that you've ever seen? Like, why do you think America has got to the point where we are uh, faster paced and we expect faster pace and things like that? I think that's two separate questions. The the first one about offense uh, and that kind of thing, I'm not sure I see it only because I've always thought the whole offense defense side of football doesn't correspond very well to things like warfare because in a funny way, to me, I always think of the more nasty side of football as the defense. To me, they're the aggressive ones. They're they're the hard-hitting ones. Now, that's not true if you get a big offensive lineman. Look how aggressive. But my point is when we think of offense and when we think of defense, the way that we think of NFL defenses to me sounds more like military offenses, if that makes sense. So to me, that analogy never worked because defenses are so aggressive and attacking and everything. They don't sit there in in football and wait for somebody to come and get them. They go get them. That's more of an offensive thing in warfare. Uh, In terms of why the growth in popularity might... I I think that there's a need to have more action nowadays. And that's something I think we've been conditioned to expect by the growth. I mean, let's remember when football started, people listened on the radio. Uh, that's, That's one level of immediacy. Then you go to television. Uh, then you go to uh, uh, live casts and Super Bowls and all. I think it's one of those things where it followed the rhythm and the growth and the pace of American life. And and I think you could almost tell in the 1970s. You could almost feel that the changing of the guard from football as a, as a second string sport for Americans and baseball being this thing Americans were absolutely crazy about. People do not understand today how that was to something where by the end of the 70s, I think you could clearly say, I felt I felt the change. I felt like football had somehow surpassed baseball by the end of the 70s, and they never looked back. Yeah, you're talking to somebody who's 34 years old. Uh, I've only known football. And when I, being a Detroit Lions fan again, I grew up only knowing 
Barry Sanders. Like Barry Sanders was football because I was four years old when he got drafted. And then it was devastating when he decided to retire. So going back to that though, it's I've only known football as being the dominant sport. But uh, you mentioned a good point about the defense being the at- the aggressors, the attackers. And of course, offense has to be aggressive as well to get there. But uh, everything that I could find, and may- maybe you have some more to to bring up this, but the term blitz, from what I understand, does that actually come from Blitzkrieg from when that happened? Or is, or did, they, did that come from another time frame? Oh, I think it probably came from there. Blitz means lightning. It's an attacking style. Uh, and that's the thing. See, in, in, in offense in football, people chase you, right? A wide receiver catches a ball, somebody chases him. Well, in, in warfare, the person doing the chasing is the offensive person usually. <laughs> right. so, so, I mean, that, that's what's a little different about the whole thing. To me, I think of defense in football as more offense in war and vice versa. I think in, in football, the offense is looking for little uh, things to exploit. Uh, the defense is looking to try to crush you most of the time. Uh, interesting story. If you like Barry Sanders, I saw him in college, and I wasn't prepared uh, for how good he was. Uh, uh, I went to the University of Colorado, and we were playing Oklahoma State. And the year before, they'd had a running back that scared the heck out of me anyway. They had great running backs at Oklahoma State at the time. And then you thought, okay, well, they're not going to be this good next year because they're replacing the running back. And it was Barry Sanders. And I couldn't believe over and over and over again, you'd be like, how did that guy, I mean, the first time you ever see Barry Sanders is one of those moments where you just go, how did that happen? How did he do And from the stands, this is a perfect example of why football is more of a TV sport. Because from the stands of watching Barry Sanders, he was so much smaller than the offensive lineman, he would just disappear. So you would miss so much of those wonderful little, those little juke moves that he would do and the things that you would just, your mouth would be hanging on the floor. You couldn't see those from the stands a lot of times. He would disappear into the line, and you'd think, okay, he's down in there somewhere, and boom, he'd come squishing out from nowhere through a hole, but you don't know how it happened. I had to watch the guy on TV like five straight times before I could really get my mind around his skill set. I'd never seen anybody like him. (laughs) Yeah, no, me either. Uh, Again, going back to my childhood, and just as everybody else did my age, I was growing up, I was going to be Barry Sanders until, well, you know, nobody can be Barry Sanders. Then I got stuck on the offensive line and I was a middle linebacker. So to go back to your point of the aggressive, the attacking, the defense, I think that's really a big thing that that drew me in even more as I progressed through my football watching career. I was a uh, uh, 2000, the Baltimore Ravens, the organized chaos defense that really drew me in. It's like I was really hooked, even though Barry Sanders was no longer there. So I've just kind of gravitated that way, and that's my style. I, I love the attacking defenses type. Oh, yeah. And listen, to me, that's, I mean, in the same way that I like, uh, and I've always been a strategic and, and a tactical, enjoy strategic and tactical uh, plans. So I, I like war games, for example. I, I like chess. I like all that stuff. But to me, football is in the same category. I loved designing plays. Uh, I, I mean, to me, that's all the same kind of stuff. So when you, people talk about the similarities between things like football and warfare, I don't think about it as to what happens on the field. To me, it's more in the way you, you strategize your approaches and your attack plans and how you exploit the other guy's weaknesses. I mean, you know, I would love to be a football coach for the drawing up of the plays side of it. What I wouldn't know anything about at all is things like technique. I mean, you mentioned you were on the offensive line. I wouldn't know anything about specific offensive line technique and whatnot, but I'd love to design plays to try to exploit defenses, you know, like a general. When I first thought about actually bringing you on the show was because I I listened to the hardcore addendum, the one, the Caesar at Hastings. Yeah. And 
it intrigued me to the idea of thinking those were, what was it like 10,000 years apart? I don't know how many years apart the, the generals were that you discussed. So do you think that nowadays players would be able to go back in time and compete back then or even vice versa back then compete with nowadays? Uh, what I do think about, and I think I probably mentioned this to you in our pre-conversation, is I do think about great teams from different eras facing each other and how the differences in uh, technique, in nutrition, in uh, workout equipment and all that other stuff combined with the changes in the game. And let's be honest, because all of that stuff makes it sound like the modern teams would have all the advantages, but maybe the toughness factor in the players from the earlier eras, how that sort of stuff balanced out. Um, I think I told you this once before. I had a conversation that when I used to be in radio for a while, the show after mine was hosted by NFL tight end great Russ Francis. And Russ and I used to talk about this. And and he played in that era that I would consider to be sort of a bridge between an older NFL and a newer one. So he got in in the in the early 70s, I want to say 73, 74, somewhere in there. And he didn't leave the game until late 80s, early 90s. And so he said he started off in what he called like the old NFL, if I'm remembering his terminology, and he retired in the modern NFL. So he was in a unique position to to let you know whether you thought, whether he thought the players that he broke in with could still play with the players that he retired around. And that conversation, I've thought about that maybe a thousand times in my head since we had it, because as a history nut, that's fascinating to me, whether those teams from earlier eras could play with newer teams. And if they couldn't play with most of them, could they play with some of them? So could the Super Bowl winner from 1972 play against the worst NFL team today? And if so, how would they do? Those are the kind of things that I think are just, those are the crazy questions I could talk about for hours. Yeah, that's something that fascinates me too. And even going with that one episode, it's like, at what point would be the breaking. Like you mentioned how there was at certain point, there's a technological advancement where they just wouldn't maybe be able to keep up. But there's not really many different technologies that have changed other than, like I said, nutrition, watching their health, you know, getting bigger, faster, stronger, maybe. Where would it be different? Because a lot of the NFL players, when it first started in 1920, I mean, a lot of them just got back home from the war. And then back in, we're talking the 50s and the, you know, the early or late 40s, they just got back from World War II. So to your point, I think uh, Gino Marchetti, he he was at the Battle of the Bulge at 17 years old. So he, before any of these other players were even into college nowadays, he's seen more than any of them would even fathom in many, many lifetimes. So it was just a total different type of uh, player. Well, and listen, there's no question. We'd be fools to not point out that the average athletic ability of your average NFL player is worlds above the average athletic ability of the one from the old days. The question that you ask is, you know, can the greats from that era, could Jim Brown play today? And if he played today, would he be average or would he be great, right? Marchetti is a perfect example. He's big enough to play now. He's he's fully prototype size. But is he going to run as well? Is he going to be an athlete enough to play in today's game? And then another person, Russ Francis, not to put words in his mouth, he would probably say something like, well, you can't pretend Gino Marchetti would be uh, uh, doing what he did back then. I think all those guys had like jobs in the off season. Nowadays they train year round. So Marchetti, if he's playing today, is going to be training year round. He's going to be using the weight equipment and all that. Plus one of the things Russ had said to me that I've never forgotten is he said that blocking is blocking. He says, if you get the other guy down and everybody gets the man down on the ground that they're supposed to get on the ground, the play is going to work. He says, the difference is, is we assume a 220 pound guy from 
35 years ago is probably not going to get a 285-pound guy on the ground today, but that's not necessarily true. And his, his example was uh, the difference between players moving around. So he was talking about uh, uh, positions that require great synchronicity between the players, like the offensive line. And he was saying, would you rather have Vince Lombardi's offensive line that played together all those years and knew every player next to them like the back of their hand, right? And the plays like the back of their hand. And they're 35 to 45 pounds. I'm making that up. It may even be more than that, lighter than today's lines. Or would you rather have one of today's lines that's bigger, stronger, faster, more athletic, but maybe you've been you know, plugging in new players all the time. They haven't played together that much. The synchronicity is not the same. And his argument was, if you manage to cut the guy in front of you and everybody else does their job, the play is still going to work. Um, so I've, I've thought about every angle of that. I've never come to a conclusion about who's right or wrong, but I would love, love, love to bring back an old team in the time machine and see who they could play with today. Yeah, I wish I could too. And uh, going back to the Lombardi's Packers, did you know that they used to have every year the defending Super Bowl champion, the first game of the next year would be the college all-stars from yes, the Yes, I was going to bring that up. I, I, you know, think about think about the lawsuits you'd have in that today if you had college yeah. players playing at a uh, – you know, it is funny though. Um, when you think of something uh, uh, like like Lombardi's Packers and you and – you, because uh, that, that's one of those teams that I, I just love. Uh, you think about if, if you wanted to have them play today, because most of the advantages would be on the modern team, right? The nutrition, the weightlifting, the, the str- all everything we talked about. But what if the rules that you set up said that the old time players get to play by the rules that they played by? So so think about their wide receivers on the on Green Bay from uh, from the 60s would perfectly understand and be ready for that clothesline that they're going to get over the middle or <laughs> yep. the horse collar. Whereas today's wide receivers that are used to not being touched, it might be there might be adjusting on both sides. You know what I'm saying here? I mean, if the Oakland Raiders linebacker core or Jack Ham and Jack Lambert on the Pittsburgh Steelers get a chance to mess with those wide receivers coming over the middle, um, it might have more of an effect than we give it credit for. And all of a sudden, all those, all those thoroughbred guys who are running a four three forty, you know, who graduated college five years ago, might find that they don't want to go over the middle anymore. Or all of a sudden, they're dropping passes because they're afraid of what Lambert might do to them. And let's not forget, guys like Jack Lambert, I don't care whether he'd be big enough to play linebacker today, but he'd be intimidating enough to play today. He might be a DB today. I think he was, what, 220? He may have been closer to 205. Right, yeah, maybe the big safety over the middle. Like, I mean, right, Ronnie Lott right. wasn't that long ago, but still, he, <laughs> players nowadays, they don't know what that's all about. And uh, it reminds me of when I play pickup basketball. I haven't played pickup basketball in a little bit, but uh, I'm not the biggest, I'm not the fastest, I'm not the strongest, but I always tell people we're playing schoolyard rules. And a lot, even though it doesn't matter they're bigger, faster, stronger than me, they don't like playing me with schoolyard rules. That was the only thing I ever brought to a basketball court was my ability to foul people hard. That that was my job. (laughs) Well, there you go. Dan Carlin, the football history dude, the enforcers on the court, the Bash Brothers of history. We'll just go ahead and leave it at that. But for now, I I just wanted to tell you, again, I, I hope that you enjoyed Dan stopping by the show to drop us some gridiron knowledge nuggets about his experiences and also his passion for the game of football. I'm glad that he came on the 100th episode of the Football History Do podcast, and I can't thank him enough 
I can't thank you enough for all the support that you've given throughout the years. I mean, if you speaking of support, not to throw it out there, but if you want, you go ahead on the website nowadays and there's a little donate button on there. You can go ahead and throw a little quiche your way to help support the show. Totally up to you. That's just right on the straight up on the website. And speaking of the website, if you want to learn more about Dan and his work and maybe even purchase his book, you can head to the dedicated page on the website at thefootballhistorydude.com slash Dan Carlin. That's Dan, C-A-R-L-I-N. Again, that's thefootballhistorydude.com slash Dan Carlin. And with that, I hope that you did enjoy this, kind of stepping out of the box a little bit, grabbing a different type of guest, not necessarily a historian of football, but this is a guy who has massive passion and experiences, and uh, say he knows a little bit about history himself. So, again, hope you enjoyed it. This 100th episode of the Football History Do Podcast. We're going to keep this thing going for another 100 and beyond. And then next week, uh, we're going to go ahead and we're going to bring Dan Carlin back for the 101st episode of the Football History Dude because we got to go ahead and finish off what we heard from Dan Carlin and we're going to take it to the next level of the storytelling mastermind that is the dude from Hardcore History. But for now, dudes, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe with your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads.